Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. Earth Day at 40, and the vision of its founder, Gaylord Nelson. An environment without ugliness, without ghettos, without poverty, without discrimination, without hunger, and without war. Our goal is a decent environment in its broadest and deepest sense. Also, the EPA turns 40, its leaders then and now. I had not been an environmentalist. I mean, there weren't many people who were known as environmentalists back in 1970. You can't look back at 40 years of EPA uh, and a leader like Bill and not see that he did many of the things he set out to do. And yet, the mission has changed because the problems in some ways have become more complex and a little harder to solve. William Ruckelshaus and Lisa Jackson, and much more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. This week, a special program commemorating Earth Day at 40, past, present, and future visions of the modern environmental movement. Coming up, a conversation with the first and current administrators of the EPA. But first, the year 1970. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Topping the Billboard chart on April 22, 1970, The Beatles. Paul McCartney announces he's leaving the group. It was a chaotic, contradictory era. Other hits that year, I Think I Love You by the Partridge Family and War by Edwin Starr. In 1970, the minimum wage was $1.60. A first-class stamp was six cents. Americans first started pumping their own gas in 1970. Regular cost 36 cents a gallon. And the average car got, well, there were no federal standards for miles per gallon back in 1970. American Motors came out with the Gremlin. A popular bumper sticker read, War is not healthy for children and other living things. And President Nixon reduced the number of U.S. troops in Vietnam to 280,000. On April 22, 1970, Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson, one of only three senators to vote against the Vietnam War early on and founder of Earth Day, delivers this speech. The battle to restore a proper relationship between man and his environment, between man and other living creatures, will require a long, sustained political, moral, ethical, and financial commitment far beyond any commitment ever made by any society in the history of man. Are we able? Yes. Are we willing? That's the unanswered question. It's been 40 years since Gaylord Nelson posed that challenge at the first Earth Day. Now for some understanding of the man who helped launch the modern environmental movement, we turn to his biographer, Bill Christofferson, who wrote The Man from Clear Lake. 
It's a little town of, at the time, about 700 people up near the Minnesota border. And the way he described it, his childhood was idyllic. It was, he spent all of his time in the outdoors, uh, hunting and fishing and catching animals. Uh, was just, you know, thoroughly uh, an outdoor kid who grew up with an appreciation for the environment. But it wasn't anything that he consciously uh, cultivated or made a decision at some point, I'm going to be an environmentalist. He said he always was one. Now, as I understand it, he grew up, well, with a lot of privilege in his little town. He's probably one of the richest families. What, his dad was a doctor? Well, to the extent that there was any wealth in Clear Lake, I guess. His father was a country doctor. His mother was a nurse. He grew up during the Depression. It was the days when the and his doctor wasn't someone who was particularly concerned about money as, as much as he was about his patients. And he often got paid in kind with a chicken or firewood or sometimes nothing. But yeah, they were more or less the first family of Clear Lake. They were very politically active. They were progressives back in the days of fighting Bob LaFollette, one of Wisconsin's famous progressives. And uh, he grew up kind of steeped in politics. And Gaylord would say that he learned a lot of things growing up in a small town. And to him, he would say the most important one was civility, that when you live in a village of 700 people, you really have to get along with everybody and you have to treat them with some respect the way that you would like them to treat you because you're going to see them again the next day and the day after that. It was something that he carried over into his political life and really tried to get along with everybody and, and not personalize political disagreements. Let's fast forward now in young Gaylord Nelson's career to the point that he is governor of the state of Wisconsin and decides to put together this humongous program to protect a lot of open space, to increase the state parks and recreation areas. It was a visionary plan that he was trying to pass that would protect open space and recreation land and wildlife habitat in the state. And at the time, set the standard for the country once it became law. But although it was popular, there was resistance from the Republicans in the legislature. And it it all came down to a, a single vote in the state Senate where there was a Republican who admired what he was doing. And then when the time came for the roll call, the senator in question voted to pass the bill, and the Republicans were stunned, had no idea it was coming. The bill passed and went on to become kind of the centerpiece of his record as governor. It really stamped him nationally as a leading conservationist and kind of started his national reputation. Gaylord Nelson goes to Washington a freshman senator, that's the bottom of the heap. There's not much you can get done as a freshman on Capitol Hill. Right. In fact, he was number 100 in seniority. He adapted to the system, began to find his way along and befriend people. He really embodied this whole idea about reaching across the aisle and working with Republicans his whole career. It was the carryover of that small town thing about being civil to people. He was really curious about what made people tick and would get to know people on a personal basis. He began immediately, even before he was sworn in, to try to push an environmental agenda. His main goal in life at that point was to try to get the environment on the nation's political agenda and make it part of the debate. So here it is, 1962, 1963. Gaylord Nelson is pushing for the environment in this time of most conspicuous consumption, I was a kid back then. I remember cars got bigger and bigger fins. Of course, there was also this countercultural movement and the concern about civil rights, the war in Vietnam. 
How does Nelson fit into this context of, of time and culture, and how did it affect how he went about his work of promoting the environment? I think a lot of those things you mentioned are interrelated or at least helped lay the groundwork for the environmental movement that he launched. The 60s, people were becoming politically active on those other issues, on on the war, women's issues, uh, civil rights. He could sense that there was a growing awareness that, that we were also getting ourselves in trouble environmentally with pollution. And it was one of those cases where the people were way out in front of the politicians. Everywhere he went and talked, local people would tell him about some issue, usually a local issue, that landfill was leaching into the drinking water. All those sort of local stories that people were aware of, and people were beginning to, to figure out that something was going on. And, and so Gaylord tapped that kind of underlying current of awareness of, about the environment and the urge to do something and couple it with the kind of activism that the 60s had produced. Gaylord Nelson has a lot of credibility with the counterculture movement, the protest movement, uh, when he calls for a teach-in April 22, 1970, and people start to organize. Basically, he was reading a, a magazine article about teach-ins on college campuses about Vietnam, and the light came on. He said, well, why don't we have a teach-in about the environment? And so in September of 1969 in Seattle, he announced there would be a teach-in the next spring. And eventually his office was inundated with calls and letters and contacts from people who wanted to be involved, and not just college campuses, but people from all walks of life and all levels of school and community groups. And it was only seven months after his speech that Earth Day came around, and 20 million people at the time, that was 10% of the population in the country, did something on Earth Day. He never could have dreamed when, when he suggested a teach-in that that was going to be the result or that it would end up in this ongoing institutionalized thing where, where now people in hundreds of countries do it. And last year, the Earth Day Network said a billion people did something on Earth Day. I mean, Gaylord never could have conceived of that when he thought it up. You recount in your book how the FBI monitored the Earth Day events around the country. What kind of criticism and opposition did he face in setting up Earth Day? I mean, this is an event that, what, Barry Goldwater, the ultra-conservative Republican, spoke at one university? Right. And how many Democratic uh, senators spoke? It was interesting. They had to shut down Congress that day because so many members had been invited to speak on Earth Day back in their home districts. Most of them had to come to Gaylord's office to get some material because they'd never given an environmental speech in their lives at the time. And... Although it was wildly popular, it's not like there were no critics of Earth Day. The John Birch Society claimed that April 22, 1970, was nothing but a thinly disguised plot by Gaylord Nelson to honor the 100th anniversary of the birth of Vladimir Lenin. So this was all a communist plot. <laughs> it, it sounds crazy, but, but enough people took it seriously enough that he decided he had to have an answer. Finally, he said April 22nd was the birth of St. Francis of Assisi, who some people think is the world's first environmentalist. And it was the birthday of Queen Isabella. And most importantly, it was the birthday of my Aunt Tilly. So he could use humor to defuse things. How much do you think the people working on Earth Day back in 1970, how much do you think they ever envisioned a 40th Earth Day? Or uh, do you think they thought that the problem would be solved by them? I think Gaylord envisioned Earth Day as a one-time, one-of-a-kind thing. But part of the genius of it is that it became institutionalized. 
mainly in the schools, but also in a lot of community groups and environmental organizations and, and others around the country who keep Earth Day alive. It happens really at the grassroots level. It has a life of its own now. Gaylord Nelson died in 2005. How satisfied do you think he was with what he had accomplished? I think he accomplished more than he ever imagined he could when he was growing up as this kid in Clear Lake, Wisconsin. And in terms of his legacy, I think his most important legacy is what he called an environmental ethic. Kids at, and young people at every level now grow up with some environmental education and awareness, and they understand that they have some responsibility for the environment. That's an environmental ethic. That is something that's instilled in at least a couple of generations now that was never there before Earth Day, certainly wasn't there when I was growing up, and, and I think we owe a lot of that to Gaylord Nelson. Bill Christofferson is a historian and political consultant. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Steve. I am always happy to talk about Gaylord. Back on April 22, 1970, the first Earth Day, I marched, but not with a lot of enthusiasm. I was more concerned about the war and the campaigns for civil and women's rights. But this huge demo, as we call them then, promised to be peaceful, and a lot of my friends would be there. My first Earth Day event was in 1990. That 20th Earth Day saw a resurgence of interest in all things green. But our campus environmental group was dismayed by the level of corporate greenwashing that came along with it. We ended up protesting an oil refinery's involvement in Earth Day. One other thing about Earth Day 1990, it's also when I started this program. Living on Earth's first broadcast included a debate over the use of nuclear power to combat global warming, famed diver Sylvia Earle on the state of the oceans, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson talking about environmental justice. More than 100 NPR stations carried those first four programs, but pollsters told us 86% of the public had little interest in hearing about climate change. It's been a short 20 years. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. Today, we're noting the 40th anniversary of the first Earth Day, April 22, 1970. Many consider that date a turning point in the modern environmental movement, and the tipping point later that same year for the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. There have been just 18 EPA administrators. The first and the only one to serve two presidents was Republican William Ruckelshaus. The current administrator is Democrat Lisa Jackson. We spoke to both about how politics and policy have shaped the agency over the years. Mr. Rucklesshouse surprised us when he said he didn't consider himself then or now to be an environmentalist. I had not uh, been an environmentalist. I mean, there weren't many people who were known as environmentalists back in 1970. I had been in charge of a uh, representing the State Board of Health when I was in the Indiana Attorney General's office, and in most state offices in those days, the Board of Health was where environmental issues were dealt with. The environment, both air and water in particular, were primarily seen as health-related issues. So let's go back to 1970. What, you're 38 years old, you're an assistant attorney general in the Department of Justice in D.C., and you get a call from the White House to head up the new EPA. As I understand it, you were number three on that White House list, that there are two other people had passed it up. What do you think they knew that you didn't? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, nobody ever told me that officially. I have read that, but 
At any rate, I enjoyed it very much, and I'm sure they subsequently felt sorry not to have accepted. So the first Earth Day happened in April of 1970s. What, eight months later, the Senate unanimously confirms you, Richard Nixon, is your boss. What role do you think Earth Day had in the creation of of the EPA? This was a new issue, certainly a new issue uh, nationally, and new in the sense of its intensity and its breadth. And Earth Day was simply a uh, manifestation of that public support, and it was that support, it was that public demand, really, that the president was responding to. Because there are no local or state boundaries to the problems of our environment, the federal government must play an active, positive role. We can and will set standards. We can and will exercise leadership. To centralize that enforcement and regulatory responsibility at the national level uh, made it much more difficult for industry to escape reasonable rules guiding their emissions into the air and water uh, by running to a safe haven to some state that did not as strictly enforce the standards. Uh, So I felt that we had to uh, initially show the American people we were serious about this by strictly not only setting the standards, but strictly enforcing them to let people know that we meant business. The White House was pretty friendly with big business at this point, though. Yes, that's true. President Nixon, uh, he admired the captains of industry, particularly those that had kind of beat their way to the top from rather modest beginnings, in many respects modeled on his own political rise. And I think he had a a great deal of respect for uh, American industry. And so you're you're busting some of his buddies then. Well, that's true, and some of them didn't like it. But I also felt that if my responsibility was to show that not only the EPA, but the administration was serious about uh, reducing the impacts of pollution on public health and the environment, uh, we had to take a strong stand. But I never felt that the president was uh, in any way intervening in what I was doing and trying to stop enforcement of these laws. Of course, by the time you really get going, President Nixon had other things on his mind. And you're right. He had other things on his plate. There was the initiative to China. There were all kinds of things going on with the administration. There was an election uh, in 1972. And afterwards, of course, he got snarled up in the Watergate so that the irritation associated with EPA's aggressiveness uh, probably wasn't the number one problem that he was concerned about. Now, you come back for a second bite of the apple of the EPA when you become administrator again. What, it's 1983? It's during the Reagan administration. Tell me, why did you come back, and and what changed for you in terms of your sense of the agency's mission? I came back because the agency was in trouble. Ann Burford, who had been appointed by President Reagan, uh, had gotten herself in a whole lot of trouble, as did other appointees. Uh, They sort of Uh, bought the line that often is taken by Republicans in an administration that a lot of this social regulation, regulation to protect health, safety, and the environment uh, is an overreaction and the result of a sort of nanny state. And she got in a lot of trouble as a result, and President Reagan asked me to come back uh, and help straighten the agency out. Now, wait a second. You're a Republican. Right. Well, yeah, I guess I still am. Barely. Uh, I believe you did support Barack Obama for president. Yeah, that's right. I haven't changed my mind all that much in the last 40 years, but the Republican Party certainly has moved. What I think the Republican Party has done recently is sort of give up on the environment. 
they rarely talk about it. I don't think many of the candidates or even their constituents think about it that often. And I think that's a shame because these problems, many of them are real and need to be addressed in an aggressive way uh, or we'll get in real trouble. I'm talking with William Ruckelshaus. He was the first administrator of the EPA when it was founded back in 1970 and then headed the agency once again from 1983 to 85. Uh, Mr. Ruckelshaus, please wait a moment now, because joining us from her hometown in New Orleans is the current administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Lisa Jackson. Ms. Jackson, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me, Steve. Hi, Bill. How are you? Fine, Lisa. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, thanks. I was just talking with Mr. Ruckelshaus about the early days of the EPA. Um, You were, what, eight when it started? (laughs) That's right. I was eight years old in 1970, long, long ago. And you got your master's degrees in, in, in chemical engineering from Princeton, and your first career job was at the EPA in, what, 1986? That's right. I started in EPA in 86, and I missed Bill, unfortunately. So maybe you hired her, Bill, but you weren't there when she actually came to work. Yeah, but she's grown <laughs> a lot since. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been at the EPA for much of your professional life. What, you worked there 16 years before you ran the uh, equivalent of the EPA in in New Jersey. Now you're back as a top administrator. How do you think the mission has changed there, Lisa Jackson? Well, I think the issues have changed because in many ways we were successful. I I think you can't look back at 40 years of EPA uh, and a leader like Bill and not see that he did many of the things he set out to do. He said, let's attack pollution. So probably the most visible thing to most Americans is what happened to water quality visibly. And, you know, what you could smell of water quality in, in this country has changed. And yet there are still pervasive water pollution problems in many areas. There are new contaminants that we didn't know anything about. They don't enter our lakes or rivers from pipes. They come from runoff every time it rains. And so the mission has changed because the problems in some ways have become more complex and a little harder to solve. I want to play for you both a recording of Senator Gaylord Nelson. Now he's considered the founder of Earth Day. And this is a speech, part of a speech that he gave that very first Earth Day, April 22nd, 1970. Our goal is not just an environment of clean air and water and scenic beauty while forgetting about the worst environments in America, in the ghettos, in Appalachians, and elsewhere. Our goal is an environment of decency, quality, and mutual respect for all human beings and all other living living creatures. An environment without ugliness, without ghettos, without poverty, without discrimination, without hunger, and without war. Our goal is a decent environment in its broadest and deepest sense. Obviously, Gaylord Nelson was a a real prescient figure in the evolution of the environmental movement. He was considerably ahead of his time when he made that speech. Mr. Nelson talked about ghettos and poverty. That's one aspect of a broader understanding, I think, that everyone should have a clean environment. And the whole concept of environmental justice, I don't think, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, was really 
uh, much of the lexicon back in 1970s. What happened over time was that people said, listen, as we work to address pollution, we have to make sure we're not transferring it, not transferring our problem to those communities that are disadvantaged or don't have a voice. And what's also happened, quite frankly, is that as this country's moved away from manufacturing in many ways, communities are left behind, where once you had a thriving industrial center, you now have a community that's just left with pollution and no jobs. And it is true that at this point there are no environmental justice laws. There's nothing on the books that gives us the ability to do it. Much of what EPA has done in that field, uh, and certainly we can do more, has been using the laws we have in a way to ensure social justice. Lisa is right that uh, when EPA started, the concept of environmental justice uh, was not part of the lexicon of, of the environment at all. In fact, that I had a meeting with the civil rights leaders shortly after EPA was created. Uh, they were quite uh, antagonistic to what we were trying to do because they saw it uh, taking people's energy and attention away from civil rights issues. There are elements of environmental justice in the environmental movement, which, frankly, we weren't paying much attention to when we started, uh, which do need to be addressed. I do think Bill's point is a really interesting one, and it's one I've heard before. It's worth a a whole show, really. This idea that somehow the environmental movement's origins coincided with a lot of the work on civil rights. And I think people felt that they had to choose which one they were going to give their heart and soul to. And it became a competition to some degree. Those times are actually long since past. I have a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old. They don't think of the environment as the purview of only the wealthy or only those people who happen to be fortunate enough to live in beautiful places, kind of the Theodore Roosevelt approach to conservation. They see pollution. They see rights. They see international issues. And when you hear me talk about expanding the conversation on environmentalism, I don't care what we call it. If I can get people to make the connection to clean air and clean water and clean land and less toxic chemicals in our environment, then if they they can call it whatever they want, they've made that connection. I know they'll fight for environmental protection. Bill Ruckelshaus, I want to ask you for some more advice for Lisa Jackson. Uh, And this is around the question of climate change. And it looks like... um, Ms. Jackson's uh, agency now, the EPA, is going to get be involved with administrating how to deal with carbon dioxide because Congress doesn't seem to be there. What's your advice to her as to how to handle this issue? She, I think she's handled it very well so far. She's uh, indicated her willingness to follow the Supreme Court's lead and recognize that CO2 is a pollutant, so are methane, other trace gases that contribute to global warming, and indicated her willingness to regulate them if the Congress doesn't act. Correct me, Lisa, if I'm misquoting you, but that the best way to control climate change or control the carbon that is associated with climate change is not through the use of the Clean Air Act as currently constructed. It's better to deal with it uh, in the context of a more comprehensive program from the Congress. But if the Congress isn't willing to do it, she in turn is willing to step forward and exercise her responsibilities. That's absolutely right, Bill. That's what I've said. I've gone a little bit further, and I've said that my belief is you can use the Clean Air Act in very smart ways. Uh, You know, there's always going to be this whole doom and gloom element, and when the economy's bad, they get a bit louder. This idea that just pervades our country and our culture that you have to choose between having environmental protection and having a strong economy. It's never been true. 
There's not one shred of evidence out there that shows that most of the major environmental laws that people swore were going to destroy our country ever did. And in fact, they've you know, been engines of innovation and creativity, everything from fighting smog to cleaning up our wastewater treatment plants. We've been state-of-the-art on environmental uh, protection and, and the in environmental industry for a long time, but we're going to have to fight through that. And what, what I tell people is that the Clean Air Act, though not perfect, uh, allows us um, lots of ways to begin to address greenhouse gases in a way that's great for our economy. The clean cars rule is a great example of that. Although the price of a car goes up slightly, um, about $900, the savings in fuel for more efficient cars for the average American is over $3,000. It actually is a positive for our economy, and it puts our auto industry back in a position to be competitive internationally. I think that Lisa's right. In dealing with a problem like climate change, uh, instead of looking at it as an all-or-nothing proposition, couching it as an insurance policy, even if you have some doubts about its ultimate impact, couching it as an insurance policy makes sense. And in that way, you could get at a lot of these issues associated with reducing carbon that are really economically very sound. They make, make sense economically as well as environmentally to take them on, and plus the fact that getting away from reliance on foreign oil from places like Venezuela and the Middle East and Russia and Nigeria makes great sense for the security not only of this country but of the world. And if we can lead the way in developing clean energy and, and weaning ourselves from reliance on that oil, uh, we would be doing a great service for peace in addition to public health. Lisa Jackson, let me ask you, you're trained as a chemical uh, engineer, how do you think your your work would be different if you had been trained as a lawyer, the way that Bill <laughs> Ruckel's house was trained? <laughs> it would well, have been a lot Bill, worse gonna, than a lawyer. <laughs> I'm going to resist telling any lawyer jokes. Uh, but I think, actually, you know, first to give credit where credit's due, the environmental movement, much of the progress has come from the sophistication that's come through environmental law. That That field has really grown because those first laws were so tremendously powerful and in some ways so tremendously broad that there's been a lot of time and effort spent uh, first, I think, by industry trying to use the courts as a weapon and now by advocates who've learned how to fight back and be progressive. I, I think, I, you know, you play to your strengths. As an engineer, my belief is that there is an unheralded connection between our society's insistence on clean air, clean water, and all the things that have come about as a result of that. So the fact that, you know, we've grown, our, our GDP has grown in 30 years by 126 percent, and yet the six major air pollutants have gone down by 54 percent is all about innovation, whether it's catalytic converters or diesel particulate filters or any number of industries that simply wouldn't exist if EPA uh, hadn't been there um, through its regulations, through um, through its leadership. And so... Although, you know, I never thought about going to law school, I think at each and every time, uh, whether it's on the legal side or the technical side, both have been critical to, to the success of moving forward on the environment in this country. And Bill Ruckelshaus, what would you have done differently if you'd been a chemical engineer rather than a lawyer? Well, I probably wouldn't have sued as many people as I did <laughs> first there. On the other hand, both Lisa and I have discovered is that using one discipline to address the environment is not going to work. You have to use them all. You have to use what legal tools you have. You have to uh, use the innovation associated with 
engineering. You have to use science. And that was something I didn't fully appreciate when I was first at EPA. I thought the problem, frankly, was legal. And that since we had laws that were pretty weak and mainly administered by the states, that centralizing the authority and administering at the national level was all you needed to do. Well, I wasn't long before I discovered it was a lot more complex than that and that I'd better learn some other disciplines if I was going to be effective. Bill Rucklesau, anything more you'd like to say before we go? No, I think that I think that's enough. I, I wish Lisa well. I think she's doing a wonderful job, and I'm delighted she's there. William Ruckelshaus was the first administrator of the EPA in 1970 and served again in the Reagan administration. He joined us from Seattle. And Lisa Jackson is the current administrator of the EPA, and she joined us from her hometown of New Orleans. Thank you both, and happy Earth Day. Thank you. Thanks. Happy Earth Day. Coming up, veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan find a new mission in environmental battles. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI. Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. We continue our observation of Earth Day at 40 with the connections between the environment and war. At the time of the first Earth Day, U.S. combat troops had been in Vietnam five years. The nation was growing weary of a war with no clear purpose, no clear exit, and escalating costs. Senator Gaylord Nelson tapped into that sentiment in a speech the evening of April 21, 1970, with an appeal to put anywhere from 25 to $50 billion toward the environment instead of war. People say that's a lot of money. I say, yes, it is. The first figure is about the amount we're wasting in Vietnam now annually, and the second figure is half the national defense budget. The parallels with Earth Day 2010 are striking. As in 1970, young Americans returning from war sometimes struggle to readjust to civilian life. And a growing number of those coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan are making that transition via the environment. We'll hear from young warriors working for cleaner energy, protecting our landscape, and healing their own wounds through contact with the natural world. We start in Washington state with an innovative program called the Veterans Conservation Corps. Counselor Mark Fisher helped create the program five years ago, inspired by a Vietnam vet from Seattle named John Beal. John had a couple tours in Vietnam, and he came back, and he had a number of uh, medical problems, cancer, diabetes, a variety of things, and his doctors gave him six months to live. So he went down to a little creek that runs by his house, Ham Creek, and uh, saw all the crap and junk and invasive weeds in that creek. And he said, well, if I've only got six months to live, I might as well do something with my time. He started pulling out old refrigerators and, you know, we're starting to remove invasive vegetation and replant things. And 26 years later, John died. 
so he, he threw himself into restoring a little stream. That's, that's what he wanted to do in what he thought was the, the waning months of his life. Right. And, uh, and John, during the next 26 years, spent a lot of time recruiting other veterans to do habitat restoration and uh, got a lot of people involved, a lot of folks around the Seattle area involved. And then that's kind of how that all came to pass. Well, what do you think uh, Mr. Beale gained from, from that work? He, he was given just a few months to live and ended up living two decades. Was that related to the work that he threw himself into? And something we talk about a lot, it's creating a new mission or purpose in life. The um, original mission of most military folks is fairly clear to them, and then when they come back into civilian life, they don't really always connect up with another mission. And so we try to, in our work, try to help people find a new purpose or mission that uh, that gives them that energy to continue on in life and be productive. And usually if they find it, they're, uh, they're gangbusters. It's hard to stop them, hard to keep them from going forward. So now it's uh, veterans returning from Iraq, from uh, Afghanistan. And what kind of work are, are they doing now with your program? Well, some of them are engaged in volunteer work, but we are really looking at um, job creation in green fields as well as other kinds of work. A lot of them are attracted to green jobs. They understand that purpose and that mission is pretty clear to them. So we have uh, a number of folks who've entered colleges in natural resources programs, energy auditing, uh, weatherization, uh, alternative energy, a a variety of things that uh, speaks to them in terms of providing a new mission in their life. The Vet Corps program is really just another example of vets helping other vets, and that's what this is really about. All my field coordinators who work out in the community are veterans, and they just love both the nature but also helping other veterans. So that's a big part of the mission, too. Just getting outside and, and working and, and being surrounded by the, the smell and the feel of that place, it, it, it must just help them come home. Absolutely. Um, a lot of them talk about that. They're really happy to be out of the desert and uh, really happy to be around green and trees and water and things that smell and taste a whole lot different than what they experienced in Iraq or Afghanistan. So that in itself is, is uh, welcoming and healing for them. Mark Fisher of the Veterans Conservation Corps. He says about a thousand veterans in Washington have participated in ecological restoration work so far. Producer Tom Bonsi caught up with three of them, hacking away at brambles outside of Tacoma. My name is Michael Farnham. I'm retired from the United States Army, 22 years. I was a cavalry scout, a reconnaissance soldier. And we're doing some invasive species removal on an area in the Nisqually Indian tribe lands. Uh, so, yeah, it's just a giant blackberry patch. We're really close to the highway, as you can probably hear. There's a few salmon berries in there. So be careful. Over 22 years, I got beat up, banged up, blown up several times, and things just don't work as well as they used to, and it kind of hurts to get up in the morning. So I, I eat Motrin like it's going out of style and uh, try to get through the day. This helps loosen me up, you know, keeps me somewhat fresh, works my muscles. Doesn't uh, I'm not stuck behind a computer just yet. And there was a, another kind of piece that went along with this, and it was it, they call it ecotherapy. Uh, I think a, a good majority of veterans, combat veterans and, and, and non-combat veterans, they, when they get out, they kind of want some solace. They want some peace. My name's Jeremy Grisham, and I served in uh, the Navy for 12 years as a hospital corpsman. Eight of those years I served with uh, the Marine Corps. And uh, I was uh, medically retired in 2005 after my, my deployment to Iraq. I was uh, diagnosed with um, 
with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and major depressive disorder. I guess they're intertwined. You know, before I was working with the VCC, I, uh, you know, I would stay at home all the time, and I, I was in a pattern of kind of self-hate and stuff like that. So I, I was in kind of self-destructive behavior, I guess. And uh, doing this sort of thing, like this sort of labor, uh, gives me a chance to, you know, get an exercise, a little workout, and kind of just let some aggression go, as some steam off or whatever. And and um, it just it's, it's helpful. Because when I'm having a bad days, um, instead of cutting myself or thinking about suicide or something, then um, I, I have an outlet. So maybe I'll uh, go chop blackberries and vent some frustration, you know, and, and then, um, or maybe just go for a walk or whatever. But it helps me think about other options. My name is Phil Hansen. Um, I served in the U.S. Army for 10 years. I was in the Airborne Infantry and then in the Infantry for about 10 years, and I got medically discharged in 2006. Finding a support group like the Veterans Conservation Corps with Mark Fisher has probably been immensely helpful. Uh, creating a bond with a group of people that are here now is, is kind of going to be a lifelong bond like I had with my brothers that I had, uh, that I served with in Iraq. So, um, you know, being in a third world country and seeing how they live and then, you know, coming back and worried about your, your Starbucks in the morning or something and then you kind of realize how petty and insignificant that is to, to living. It's... That's been a big hurdle for me and a lot of people I know. It's just, yeah, it, it just puts life into a different context for you. So, Coming through, removing invasives, planting natural, you know, natural shrubs and wildflowers and trees and things like that that belong here in the first place. And having that, there's kind of an instant gratification you get from knowing that you're, you're creating something, you know, that pretty much has been neglected and, and probably destroyed by us in the past. And so just... I don't know, it's therapeutical. Lunch? Yeah. Uh, now on to the important business. Yeah. Members of the Veterans Conservation Corps in Washington. Other veterans are coming home with strong views about the energy we use and the wars we wage. Workers with the company Nexamp install solar panels on a rooftop in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Company president and co-founder Dan Leary looks on. We only put you on the steepest. Hey, whatever. <laughs> It's a far cry from Dan Leary's last job. He was an army captain stationed in Kuwait. Leary says what he saw in the desert left him determined to start a clean energy company back home. Nexamp is a full-service clean energy integration company, and we do everything from construction to life cycle maintenance of, of these systems. And what we're specifically building a lot of these days is solar electric and solar hot water systems. We're building wind turbines. We're building uh, a lot of geothermal systems. We're doing energy-efficient lighting systems. Also, um, combined heat and power systems. Do, do you feel like you, you came back from the war especially fired up about clean energy? I was. I was. And I think it's important for our generation to get on top of this because I, I think anything that we can do to bring better security to our nation is less task that, you know, frankly, our children, our grandchildren are going to have to deal with. Energy and water and, and a whole number of things that lead ultimately back to we just have to have much more sustainable practices as a society. Do you get a sense that your, your fellow veterans uh, have had a kind of, uh, I don't know, an awakening about uh, energy issues? I think that we all have. I think that veterans have been able to see it firsthand, what is sustainable and what's not sustainable. 
as soon as you've seen a massive desalinization plant running on oil that has to be pumped from thousands of feet below the ground to sustain large populations, you understand just how fragile the whole system is. And I think that's what veterans certainly understand firsthand. And the more that we can generate on site, it does things that more than just national security. It's really just the right thing to do. Leary's not alone in that thinking. A recent poll of Iraq and Afghanistan vets found an overwhelming majority see our energy policy undermining national security. And just over 70 percent support policy changes to promote clean energy and address climate change. The poll is sponsored by the group Vote Vets, which is also part of a rolling public outreach program called Operation Free. Operation Freeze Bus, powered by biodiesel, has rolled through 22 states so far, drumming up support for legislation on clean energy and climate change. We got on the bus to talk with Army vet Robin Eckstein of Wisconsin, Marine vet Matt Victoriano of Arkansas, and Navy vet Wade Barnes of Massachusetts. Barnes says he had an epiphany while watching his ship refuel. It takes on one million gallons of diesel fuel at a shot. When you watch diesel fuel flow through a one and a half foot diameter pipe for four hours under high pressure and you realize that's something that's done every seven to ten days it doesn't take a lot to kind of extrapolate that out and think about that same flow going through each of our fuel pumps into our into our vehicles things like that and when i learned through operation free that we're really transferring one billion dollars a day overseas to fuel our oil addiction it really hammered it home. Uh, that that really was probably the, the turning point for me. Robin, same question for you. What was it about your experience in Iraq that you think motivated what you're doing now? I was part of like the logistical nightmare that the military deals with because of our energy policy. I drove in convoys every day all around Baghdad uh, hauling fuel and water. And every time I left the gates of Baghdad International Airport, it was a roll of the dice of whether what I was going to encounter that day. You know, whether it was going to be sniper fire, ambushes, you know, IEDs. Was anyone going to be shot or killed? So that I could be this huge, slow-moving target, hauling this fuel and water to get to these various outposts. I mean, if these other forward operating bases had solar generators, that'd be less missions that I would have to pull. And so it was really important for me to make sure that we that we move in that positive direction because I don't want to see other truck drivers, you know, in the future having to die over something that, you know, we can do something about. I think a lot of people will understand the connection with dependence on foreign oil undermining our national security, but climate change might not be so obvious. How do you explain that to people? You know, as far as climate change goes, I listen to my chain of command. The Pentagon, the DOD, and the CIA are all on board with this. They're saying it's true, and I'm sorry, but the CIA isn't known for hugging trees and saving polar bears. They specifically list climate change as an accelerant to the instability in nations. Currently, we can see it in um, Afghanistan and Somalia, where climate change has disrupted these areas that were already unstable in the first place. It's accelerated the problems, you know, with famine and drought, and the areas become breeding grounds for terrorists. You know, the uh, conversation around uh, climate change and a cap-and-trade type approach to dealing with greenhouse gases, it's become very politicized. 
Do you uh, think that you're able to, I don't know, sort of do an end run around the partisanship that's become associated with this issue because you're approaching it as veterans? Our, our message gets a lot of traction because we are veterans, but I also truly believe this issue transcends partisan politics. And when you come at this from a national security an- standpoint, you're talking about an issue that everyone can get behind. This isn't a left issue. This isn't a right issue. This is an American issue. We want to secure our energy future and make America number one again. And we can do that by passing comprehensive clean energy legislation. The bus stops at an American Legion Hall in Rentham, Massachusetts, where a few dozen people, mostly men in their 50s and up, sip coffee and listen to Robin. She tries to bridge the generation gap here with a reference to World War II. America really came together during World War II People were at their own home creating these victory gardens. Wouldn't it be great if we could have our own victory gardens by having these solar array fields, by having these wind turbine places? Have those be our victory gardens. Have, have that energy be here in the United States, that money here, those jobs here. Peter Baker, who calls himself a Cold War veteran, speaks up. I run a small little business, and uh, I could easily retool to make uh, solar panels. There are some things going on, and I'm proud of my country. I want it to stay proud. I don't know what the heck to tell my grandchildren. I don't know what to tell my son, what to do, where to go. Well, there's something where you can get on board, and that's what we're here for, is to get people out there duffs and do something about it. Thanks. After a lively Q&A period, it's back on the bus and on to the next town. Matt Victoriano says the response in Rentham is typical of what he's hearing from people around the country. Deep concern about national security and economic uncertainty and a general anxiety about where the country's headed. They have a hard time looking at their grandkids and and, and making sure that they're going to be secure when, when they grow up and they have kids on their own. We spend billions and billions of dollars on oil subsidies, on foreign jobs. We get 60% of our, our oil from overseas. We have a, a manufacturing sector that has dwindled. They see the jobs going overseas and they say, what can we do? And this, this absolutely is a way to bring those jobs back, bring the money back. They hear a message and they, they can go home and, and, and tell their grandkids, yeah, there is hope for you in the future. Do you see this as a sort of continuation of your service to your country? We didn't stop our service to the country once we took off our uniform. We carry that, that same patriotism, that same dedication in our hearts wherever we go. I did see uh, you know, 19-year-old Marines crying with holes in their body and blood coming out, and it's, uh, it's my responsibility to keep on doing what I can to protect them and make sure that their best interests are, are always taken into account. All veterans want to keep on serving their country once their, their service in the military is over, and this is, you can't find a better way to do it than this. There's more about these veterans' programs and green jobs for vets at our website, LOE.org. Now, we need your thoughts. Earth Day is 40 years old, middle-aged indeed. Does it still have a role? And what should that role be? Let us know how you feel. Email us at comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. Or call 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Yet it comes from the sky above. Make me feel so free. Make me feel like me. 
Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Basklam, Eileen Valinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreese Kandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Emily Guerin and Bridget McDonald. We had engineering help this week from Dana Chisholm. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening, and happy Earth Day. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.